part of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back. You are listening to The Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. And we are now in overtime, the second half of the program where we have freed ourselves from the shackles of the FCC censors. We are online only in overtime, uh, but you can find the online uh, overtime segment on Unclaimed Mysteries Radio. Uh, we That airs the following Friday morning at 9 a.m. on Unclaimed Mysteries Radio. So if you're hearing us there, appreciate it. Uh, just search Unclaimed Mysteries Radio on Live 365 and you'll get a uh, an assortment of local Huntsville music and commentary. Uh, So that's a neat little project that's going on here um, that we are happy to be a part of. Um, And there was a... uh, We did get a question about the song, uh, what version of Which Side Are You On uh, is it that we use? And it is the... um, I think it's like the only recording of... Florence Reese actually singing it. I don't know if there's multiple recordings. I think it's the only one. Uh, she's singing it, I think, at some union function. Uh, and then Jules Taylor, the producer of the Working People's podcast, uh, he remixed it. Uh, he put some, you know, put a little bit of banjo there because she sung it a cappella. Um, so he put a little bit of music behind it, and uh, we use that for our. Um, we use that for our our show and our intro and outro music and and and, and stuff like that. Um, I wonder if maybe maybe I can get maybe I can send send it to Joe, send that file to Joe, and he can do like a like a little music video thing, you know, like where they have those uh, those lyric music videos, you know, that they do. Right. Maybe that would be cool. Yeah. Maybe maybe he'd be interested in that. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, the song name is um, is uh, which side are you on? Um, but but you're not going to be able to find uh, it with the music that we have behind it. Uh, you're, you're not going to be able to find that because it was uh, we commissioned it and it was made specifically for us. Uh, but feel free to you know download the the video. Uh, you know once we once we go live, I think you should be able to just download the the live show and you can cut that three minutes if you you know want to have that song like in your collection or something. But yeah, I do like the idea of a of a music video uh, highlight featuring the song because we do get you know a lot of positive feedback about it so mm-hmm. uh i second that motion yeah absolutely and uh and again i just want to shout out jules taylor uh he is the one that that did the remix he's a producer of the working people's podcast and he is uh, uh very reasonably priced if you need any uh you know music commissioned for um for a project then you can reach out to him uh, so we've got a caller on the line, and it's uh, it's Joe, Joe from Decatur. Uh, how you doing, Joe? Haven't haven't heard from you on the show in a while. 
Well, I didn't want to take up all your time, Jacob. Y'all, y'all <laughs> always got something pretty interesting going on. I don't want butt in, but uh, last week I listened to the show, and of course it was a lot about uh, Memorial's Worker or Workers Memorial Day, mm-hmm. and uh, I just jotted me down a few notes, and uh, y'all happened to mention that uh, lack of inspections uh, uh, by OSHA. Mm-hmm. Uh, is real slack, and, and of course there's a reason for that, underfunded, not enough agents, blah. But uh, I just wanted, I just wanted to point out a couple of things that uh, that workers get involved in. Uh, that's probably detrimental to 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 their own welfare, and mm-hmm. and that's things like OSHA sponsored voluntary participation programs and probably everybody's heard of VPP uh, where where employees form committees blah and and look at jobs and so forth so on and then they get OSHA to come in on a on a voluntary thing to uh, interview employees so forth so on uh, and see if they qualify for one of their star sites for VPP, well, basically, what that does in the long run, yeah, you get a lot of you get a lot of members and, and employees at the non-union shops to participate in those things. But what it actually does is is when people complain to OSHA enough mm. about their work site, that could that could be reason for OSHA to come in on an unannounced inspection. Of course, the companies, they can't stand that. But what VPP does is, if you qualify, is guarantee you no surprise inspections since Mm. you're a VPP site. Uh, If you you look at, if you look at the the things that y'all mentioned last week, the TIR total incident rate, uh, which is which is where they have to keep up with injuries and so forth. The the TIR will also trigger if it gets high enough an inspection. Uh, therefore, therefore companies have uh, found ways to water down what has to be reported. Uh, Somebody gets cut, and they they go to the they go to the medical department or the nurse or whatever, and you know their 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 first thing is, well, how can we keep this off the books for the TIR? I just I just wanted to mention that. I just wanted to mention that, and then I also wanted to mention that these companies who offer gain sharing programs, profit sharing programs, uh. They also want to tie those to to injuries on the job. Uh, mm. You can be coasting along there for three months and fixing to get your so-called gain sharing check, uh, and all at once, all at once, uh, it might look pretty, might look like you're going to get a pretty fair one. And the company decides, okay, this accident right here is uh, one that we're going to make sure we get recorded. Mm. And then they start deducting. They start deducting from your gain sharing, which 
that's a whole other story. But what it does do is encourages workers not to report accidents for that mm. very reason. Right. Uh, now I'm on, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna beat up on that, but uh, wanted to mention a couple of things in the Alabama legislators. Uh, and and y'all talked about it last week, and and uh, the first one was uh, the grocery tax. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping to actually get on the radio because <coughs> the the whole the whole thing about the grocery tax, I believe, and I and I could be wrong, but I believe most Alabamians think, uh, okay, they're going to take the tax off of groceries, therefore, therefore. In most cities now, the total tax rate is about 10%, 4% of it going to the state. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a 4% reduction in the tax rate on groceries. And what they've done in the legislature has, has passed it in the House, and I don't think it's gone to the full Senate yet. But, but they, make, they make Alabamians think that, hey, this is a real big deal. But if you really look at it, if you really look at it, the way it's working right now under under their legislation is they're going to reduce it by a half a percent the first year and then incrementally step it back, I guess, till they reach that 4% if they don't change their mind. But if you really take the half percent uh, off of 4%, an individual goes to the grocery store and spends two hundred dollars on groceries. If all of them items are taxable, it, what it really winds up being on a two hundred dollar grocery bill is one dollar. Right now, that's just using pretty pretty simple math, and a dollar a dollar ain't much of a tax break. Now, come on, don't you know? Right. Uh, it's really it's really pathetic to to lead the to lead the the Alabama voters to think, hey, we're fixing to get uh, uh, cut a cut a ten percent tax off our groceries because that's really not what it is. Right. And then, uh, so I I think it's pretty deceiving the way they the way they put that out. And and most people don't really even look, you know, they don't really even realize that it only equals about a dollar on two hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, and and not thing. only that, but this this bill, I think it actually doesn't even the end of this bill is not even the full four percent. It's only up to two percent, right, Adam? That's the max, and I, and then it only you know you mentioned Joe that it goes half a percent each year, but it only goes half a percent each year if the education trust fund revenue increases by three per, by no less than 3%. So if the education trust fund revenue does not increase by at least 3% next year, uh, then you, they, the half a percent increase does not even happen. Um, it's stalled until the next year. So yeah, it's very, very small beans. Convoluted because it's just too hard for them to do common sense right things. Yeah. And so we got to make it yeah. difficult and jump through hoops to to get somewhere close to something positive, and then it's it never amounts to you know what's mm-hmm. promised. Yeah, but but Joe, I uh, you know we are going to be um, we're going to be uh, uh, pre taping for for May the thirteenth because you know because of my wedding, and so um, so what I'll do is I'll clip 
I'll clip this bit where you're talking about uh, the grocery tax, and we'll put it on put it on for the the radio portion next week. Well, well, I'd just like for folks to really to really know uh, what it really amounts to. You know, mm-hmm. it, it ain't it ain't like you spend a hundred and you save ten dollars in taxes because it don't do that at all. I mean, it's far from that. Uh, the other couple of things, uh, one one other thing I want to mention, and then I'll get off the phone, is the overtime tax. Mm. Now y'all gonna have to y'all gonna have to correct me on this, but uh, I really really find it difficult to agree with with the overtime tax on your wages. Uh, not be included in taxes. And the reason I say that, the reason I say that, if you want to help the vast majority of Alabama workers, and why ain't they? Why ain't they not taxing the first forty hours? Mm. Uh, where where you know you're going to actually probably probably be working forty hours if you got a full time job. If you right. if you're working less than full time, you get absolutely no effect from it uh, mm-hmm. whatsoever. But my real problem with it is my real problem with it is is, and I've witnessed this myself and I've lived it myself. Uh, people who work a lot of overtime, whether that be voluntary or mandatory. Uh, the more overtime, and, 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 and like I say, I've witnessed this with my own eyes, the more overtime people work, the less employees they got to have in the long run. Mm. Uh, right. I, I, I mean, really, really and truly, mm. uh, it, to, to me, that's a problem. To me, that's, right. that's kind of going backwards when we, even though the unemployment rate is so-called 3.5% now, uh, if if times get a little rougher, if times get a little rougher and these companies want to remain competitive so forth, uh, then, then if they start laying off some workers, but at the same time forcing the rest to work overtime, i.e. West Rock down down south that was yeah. on strike. Uh, uh, to me, we're going backwards on that, Jacob. Yeah. I mean... Uh, yeah, we now, really now should now not I be... Don't. I mean, we shouldn't be incentivizing people... Um, we shouldn't be incentivizing workers to work more than 40 hours a week, and we certainly shouldn't be incentivizing employers to work their workers more than 40 hours a week. I mean, really, you know... Absolutely. I, 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 I totally agree that the, that the focus should be on... How do we make sure that people are able to get what they need to have a good life within 40 hours uh, so that they can actually have eight hours for what they will, right? (laughs) And eight hours for rest. Exactly. And that's, uh, you know, it's it's amazing that that's becoming kind of a radical concept again, that people ought to have eight hours for what they will uh, in the day. And and we're going to be talking to... um, uh, you know, to these to this cast uh, of Toll Puddle here in, in just a second about some of these fights from 1800s England, where they were fighting for uh, the right to a 16-hour day and the right to a 12-hour day and the right to a 10-hour day, right? Um, but uh, yes. 
So, so yeah. Well, I I really appreciate it, Joe. Always, always good to hear from you, and, and always, always. Well, really well good let stuff me let me let me just mention one more thing, and I will make it really sure. quick. Both for the both for these tax bills that I'm talking about, I think I think that was a really really bipartisan uh, uh, mm-hmm. support mm-hmm. on both of them. The overtime uh, tax, have, the overtime one was actually introduced by a Democrat. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I absolutely do not understand that. You know, I'm a yellow dog Democrat. Period, and uh, always will be. But but I certainly don't think it was very well thought out. But I also think that it's just another. It's just another uh, thing that does get some. Uh, statewide interest from from your average guy who don't pay much attention to the legislator anyway, but uh, it's a way for them to get some attention, uh, like they're really doing something big for us. Uh, they 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 promoting this kind of stuff while they're while they're stabbing us in the back on the voting rights. Uh, Jacob, I'll let y'all go. Hey, Adam, Adam, just keeping with progressive corrective discipline. You was late Thursday, man. So uh, I know. Can, I know. You can just you it's can just consider warning. this an oral reprimand. <laughs> yeah, you can just consider this an oral reprimand. But I All do right, appreciate, I appreciate the heads up, and, Joe, and I'll, I'll talk to my rep in the meantime. You know I'm kidding. You know I'm kidding. But I <laughs> oh, I know, brother. It. I appreciate it, man. All right, talk to y'all later, man. Have All a good right, one. Brother. Have a good one. Have All a right, bye bye. Uh, yeah, well, that was Joe. Joe from Decatur is uh, a g- great guy, um, really a, a leader in the labor movement here in North Alabama, former steel worker, uh, retired out of the Cortland, Alabama International Paper Mill. Um, great to uh, really enjoy, uh, and I really feel honored to have him as, a, as somebody that I can that I can call and, and call a friend and, and call for advice, and, and um, you know, he's a definitely a a good asset to folks. And, and if, if there's anybody and any young person out there that is, you know, that has any questions, maybe from somebody who's been around for been around the block, I'm sure that Joe would be willing to talk to you. So, um, so if you want to be put in touch, reach out to me. So Adam, we've got those folks from toll puddle on the zoom, right? Uh, I believe we still have them on the zoom. Let me, let me check here. Um, and we also do have a clip from the musical too. We can play. Um, so I'm not sure if you wanted to do that first before the interview or Yeah, well let's play this let's play uh, and they are still on the Zoom. Yeah, I'm not seeing okay. them but I think I think they're still here. Okay, good deal. Yeah, go ahead and we can bring them into the room and we'll start by playing this clip here. Awesome. Yeah, so so just to set this up, this is a uh musical that is going to be taking place uh next weekend in uh Montgomery area and uh this was put together during the pandemic, the clip at least. So uh, they had some limited, you know, resources in putting this together, but I think it was very impressive nonetheless. So uh, this is from Toll Puddle, the musical. Topodal 6, you stand accused before this court For forcing a secret oath not authorized by law It is a crime to force an oath that doth purport To keep a man from testifying what he swore We will be free Topodal 
106, sit down and get used to those chains. We men of the jury are the laws you hope to cheat. No one can help you, only have yourself to blame. We have your friend and Edward Lake here at our feet. We will be free. They knocked on my window round Christmas last. It was Brian and Hammett, that's when they asked. If I'd come to Stanfield's house to join them both, that's where we swore that oath. They gave me a blindfold so I couldn't look At who made me swear as I kissed the good book My soul would be plunged to eternity If I broke my secrecy We will be free Was it James Loveless that cajoled you in this way? Please take a moment to consider what you say I think it could have been I speak for Stanfield, Hammett, and Brine And note how this crime is defined Is meant to prevent planning mutiny Not this friendly society I speak for the other three tall puddle men You accuse of seditious intent Would evil people collect a few bob For those who could lose their job? If we sinned, it wasn't intentionally We injured no person, no property Just tried to provide for our family Degradation to stop their starvation. Can you prove our intention? Counters this statement. Men of the jury, now it's time you must agree. Was there an oath that bound these men to secrecy? The rest is irrelevant, so please don't be confused. How do you find these men of what they are accused? Top out of six, I have considered your defense That no one was harmed and that you meant no ill intent But as an example to all other working men You'll serve seven years of transportation starting hence We raise the watchword liberty We will, we will be free We raise the watchword liberty Top out of six, you face a sentence worse than death. If you survive the journey, you'll resent your breath. Be an example to the nation's working men. Those who think to organize will have to think again. Top out of six, you face a sentence worse than death. If you survive the journey, you'll resent your breath. Be an example to the nation's working men. Those who think to organize will have to think again. We raise the watchword liberty, we will.
We will be free. That's very, very impressive. That's that's really cool. I like that a lot. Uh, though I can get into it if there's some working class history involved, right? Absolutely. So like Les Mis or Newsies. Um, so kind of, you know, reminded me of those and, uh, yeah, I was very impressed by the, uh, talented folks there, man. That's, yeah. that's great stuff. Yeah. So, uh, let's bring, let's bring the folks in and have them, cause I don't think they gave us uh, the names of everybody who is going to be joining. So yeah, this morning they had a rehearsal, uh, and I've been speaking with the director, Ryan Thornhill and, um, I believe we're going to be able to have some of the cast on as well. So, uh, Ryan, I don't know if you can hear me, but, uh, yeah, y'all can uh, jump on whenever y'all are ready. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks so much for having us on. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I'm here with uh, our, our lead cast member, uh, Matthew Givens, who plays um, George Loveless in the musical. So um, the other cast members are actually over on the, the stage performing and, and rehearsing, and I pulled Matt aside to kind of uh, – get to chat with you guys today so hi guys hey awesome thanks, thanks for joining us we really appreciate it and uh we were very impressed by the clip and so uh yeah just if, if y'all want to just kind of introduce yourselves and then tell us tell us about toll puddle the musical yeah so i'm um ryan thornhill i'm the director um i'm actually a london-based director who uh, flew in to work on this project um here in alabama so um I'm also the, the festival director for the Alabama International Fringe Festival, which is what is happening next weekend and what Toll Puddle is performing as part of. Um, and Toll Puddle tells the story of these six martyrs, the, the, the Toll Puddle martyrs from um, south and the south of England, who um, wanted to create a union because they were being treated unfairly by their their landowning uh, masters, as you would, as as they call them, um, and they wanted to start a union. And and when the masters started hearing word of these unions being formed and, and things like that. They actually set up all of these charges for these six men, um, tried them, convicted them and sent them to Australia for, uh, for, to work as, um, field masters as well as part of the conviction. Um, and this is just the story of, um, of them, their journey, how they get to Australia, how they come back and then how they ultimately wind up in Canada, uh, to kind of restart their lives. Wow. I think that's really cool. Just, you know, I think it's always fun when art actually focuses on working class lives and working class struggles. And and of course, as a union talk radio show and as union members, you know, anytime there's art that focuses on the union experience, I think that's really, really cool. And so I think that's uh, that's fantastic that that's happening right here in Alabama. And uh, yeah, tell us more about the festival. Um, so, yeah, the festival. Um Another product of, um, of the pandemic, um, we are a collective of people from around the, the globe, really, who have been working over Zoom for the past few years to get this festival set up here in the River Region. Um, and we chose the River Region because it has a very vibrant art scene um, all across the board, performing arts, uh, visual arts, everything, um, and a, a very, very high caliber of community theater. Um, so that's why we chose this area to set it up in. and. Um, it's going to be running next weekend, like you said. Toll Puddle's performing at Prattville's Way Off Broadway Theater Friday night. 
And then um, all day Saturday and all day Sunday, we will be at the Shakespeare Garden at the Shakespeare, Alabama Shakespeare Festival um, with uh, live full, full stage performances um, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and then a gospel concert happening on the Great Lawn next to the pond uh, at Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Um, on Sunday morning, there'll be food trucks. We'll have local churches coming and performing. And um, that's really kind of what's setting us apart from the other fringe festivals from around the country is this, you know, where we are in the, 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 the Bible Belt of the South and, and we want to do include the local churches and, and, and the gospel um, into the festival as well, just because of where we are. So um, we have that happening as well. And then there's also a film festival happening in downtown Prattville and uh, what we're calling our live stories event, which is fascinating people that we have come across that have fascinating stories, basically just performing a, a monologue of, of their life for us. Um, and that'll happen in downtown Prattville. So there's a lot, a lot happening next weekend here in the River Region. So we're very, very excited about it. Yeah, I really, really hate that uh, that that I'm not going to be able to go. Um, and Adam, somebody in the YouTube chat said that me and you were were muted, but not the guests. I'm not sure what that's about. But you know, the um, I, I, I it sounds like it's going to be a really great event, and I am definitely a big fan of of gospel music and and unions and and uh, the the. Um, and so mixing the two is is really it's almost like y'all are. Um, Y'all are trying to <laughs> trying to put this on uh, specifically for me, um, <laughs> but the uh, the the actor that that you have with you, I'm I'm interested in in hearing from uh, from him as well, and and uh, you know, so uh, what got you into the theater, and um, and uh, you, you know, how how have you how have you felt um, practicing rehearsing for this uh, for this particular production? Well, um, I actually got into theater back in 2005. My daughter uh, was in theater in high school and she wanted to audition for a community theater production, but she was nervous. So we said, yeah, we'll go with her and we'll, we'll you know, support. So I got cast in My Fair Lady. I played Helfred P. Doolittle, Eliza's father. Yeah, that's me. Um, so, and, and after that, we just kept doing theater. I've been doing theater ever since and I really enjoy it. Uh, this is a very interesting show. I've done some historical-based things before, uh, but nothing like this. And it's, it's it's really interesting. The fact that it's an all-original musical is uh, it was very oh, wow. attractive to me. The fact that we're performing in Alabama Shakespeare Festival that was a real bonus. And the, and as you said, the material it's, it's really good because I mean, Total Puddle actually illustrates all of the reasons. Goes back to the roots of the unions and illustrates why they were formed mm -hmm. in the first place. These men were getting paid enough to support their families, but they also had the common lands that they could plant their crops. Well, what happened was the master started, it took that right away. You can't um, plant crops for your own use in the common land anymore, which means they didn't have enough money to feed their families. And they were actually pushed into it. When they asked for a raise, they actually got a pay cut. I mean, this is illustrates exactly why the unions were formed in the first place. So they formed the unions and then they were um, uh, convicted on trumped up charges. And, and and one interesting thing from the, from the play that I, I liked was um, when they were in in Australia for seven years, the union actually supported their families because that was one of the promises. That made. We, if you get in prison, we'll support your families while you're in prison. And they did. So, wow. I mean, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's, it's a really, really powerful and telling story. I mean, people will come to see it. It's all original music. And some of these songs are absolutely gorgeous. We have some marvelous vocalists. Uh, it, it'll be a great experience. 
Awesome. Well, y'all, I, I really appreciate y'all uh, taking the time to talk to us about it. Uh, Ryan, remind folks where uh, where and when they can go to the festival and, and when Toll Puddle will be playing and, specifically. And before you do that, though, it, I, I just want to say I really appreciate it, and I love the, the entire festival idea and the concept, and I hope to see a lot more of it in Alabama. So y'all, you know, I hope it's very successful this year. Uh, you know, Jacob's got his wedding going on, so both of us are a little tied up this Saturday, uh, and I, I hate that we can't make it, but I really encourage our listeners to check it out if you're, you know, anywhere close to the area. It sounds like it's going to be fantastic and a little something for everybody, so so y'all check that out, and yeah, Ryan, uh, remind us all the details. So yeah, the um, 2023 Alabama International Fringe Festival kicks off Friday, May 12th at Way Off Broadway Theater in downtown Prattville with Toll Puddle, the musical at 7.30. Um, Toll Puddle performs also at the Alabama Shakespeare on Saturday at 1.30 and Sunday at 7 p.m. and also Saturday at 5.30. So we do three performances of Toll Puddle at the uh, Shakespeare Garden. Um, another thing I kind of wanted to mention on seven at 7.30 p.m. on Saturday night, um, we have a, a play reading of a new musical, Wilson Pickett, His Life, His Music, His Legacy. And I like to mention that because we are in Pickett, Pickett land, you know, him mm-hmm. native of Prattville. Um, with the Wilson Pickett Festival just happened a few weeks ago, we got them to come back to perform again uh, for this this fringe. So we're really excited about that. But yeah, nice. yeah, join us next weekend. It's just going to be a, a weekend full of fun, art, and, and exciting performances. All right. Really awesome. appreciate your time, y'all. Thanks, Good luck. Thank you Break a leg. Break yeah. a leg. Good luck, y'all. Thank, Thank you, guys. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Uh, speaking of art and labor, 11,000 writers are on strike right now. That's right. Um, 11,000 writers are on strike in the first writer strike since 2007. So uh, over 15 years since we've had a writer strike. The WGA uh, voted 97.5% or 98.5% to go on strike. Wow. Well, that's pretty uh, overwhelming. Pretty overwhelming, I would say. And um, the uh, some of the, um, the conditions are really, uh, it, I mean, it, it's it, one of the things that you'll hear if you listen to a lot of these interviews of these writers is that it is, it's becoming more and more difficult and in, and in many ways, all but impossible to actually be a middle class writer anymore. You basically are poor and scrapping together, you know, working all the time and just barely eking out a living, or you are, um, you have inherited wealth, and so that doesn't matter. Or you're one of the you know one percent that like make right, it the big, top of the top. right? And so. It's really, whereas before there really was, you know, there was an industry of like, there are good paying middle class jobs for writers that that a lot of people can occupy. And uh, and it's just, that's becoming. And let's not forget that entertainment is a huge industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, a you know, in the billions of dollars industry. And uh, right. There's a lot of money being made off this labor. Absolutely. And uh, one of the I think the thing that um, the writers have really latched on to is uh, the residual pay. There are several demands, um, but the residual pay seems to be 
one of the biggest, one of their biggest issues. And the way that writers were paid before, and that, and they're still paid now, which is part of the problem, is that they would get, you know, an upfront cost, a uh, 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 fee for their labor, but then every time the show aired, you know, so Friends had a huge, a long shelf life after its run. I mean, it's still probably being played on, you know, Nick at Night or something, uh, reruns. And so every time a Friends episode airs, all of the writers, all of the actors, a lot of, I, I think probably the, I mean, I don't know, I'm not going to speak out of turn, but definitely the writers and the actors, they get residuals. So they get a portion of the proceeds because somebody is still paying to put advertisements in this rerun of Friends, right? And so when these people pay to put advertisements in the reruns of Friends, uh, that the payment from that advertisement gets split uh, in uh, between all the people that are involved in the production of that episode. Not equally, um, but you know, it gets split um, and and that is worked out by the by the various unions and, and stuff like that. And so uh, before you were able, residuals were like a really big. Um, you made a lot of money off of residuals, and now with streaming, there's less and less money coming from advertisement and more and more coming from subscription service. And so the residuals don't work the same way. Um, and then on top of that, they're getting less residuals for every time you rewatch on Netflix. But then on top of that. One of the things that writers are saying that production studios are doing is instead of allowing a property to stay on uh, their streaming service and be rewatched, meaning that they'll have to continue paying residuals, uh, they just take it off. They just totally take it off of the website. Yeah, and that that is so crazy to me mm -hmm. and so frustrating. I mean, it's frustrating as a customer because you think right. like this really cannot be costing you any money to host on your platform. Like it's not like taking up shelf space in a right. retail store, right? Uh, which even that is kind of, you know, pretty minimal cost, but mm -hmm. it's just wild. Yeah. The fact that they're taking that off and I, I've been really, that's one of the, you know, the talking points I've had with folks uh, in conversations about this writer strike. And it, it really seems to, you know, to resonate with folks because yeah. it, it irritates the, the customer while screwing over the worker. Right. Uh, and, you know, God, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing they hit that sweet spot, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Um, uh, they're really getting screwed over. And there was one interview that I saw from a writer on More Perfect Union that said that um, for, an, um, for a project that they worked on, if it was similarly successful before, uh, before the streaming era, they would have made twenty thousand dollars in residuals, and uh, but instead they made uh, twenty three dollars, twenty three dollars. Wow! Um, and so you know that really shows you that's probably an extreme example, and that disparity is not going to happen just a whole lot. Uh, but that kind of illustrates to you the problem, and um, and then but overall. Riders, when you account for inflation over the past 20 years, have seen a 23% decrease in their salaries and in, in the in the amount that they're paid. And so uh, they're really fighting a lot of battles. Um, but but they have some other uh, they have some other demands. And so I'll, I'll read some of these to you uh, from the WGAs. Like they're being really public with the way that they're negotiating. And so they have this list of things that they're that they're wanting addressed in their proposals. And so uh, one of them is. 
increasing the minimum compensation uh, to to uh, address the devaluation of writing in all areas of television, new media, and features. And so that is going to basically shift a lot of the compensation from the residuals from the lifetime of the product to the front end since they're not making residuals as much. Um, also, standardizing the compensation and residual terms for features, whether re released theatrically or on streaming. Um, addressing the abuses of many rooms, uh, which I've not heard as many uh, interviews with writers about these, but, but basically it's uh, they're cutting staff, right? And that's, that's basically the crux of it, is they're using many rooms, uh, many writers' rooms to cut staff. Uh, they also want to ensure appropriate television series writing compensation throughout the entire process of pre-production, production, and post-production. Um, and so one of the things that I've seen there is that like there's there's just a lot of work that actually goes unpaid before you uh, before you start getting paid for it. And then there are some times that you do all this unpaid work and then you don't get paid for it because the project doesn't actually never gets the green light. Um, they want to also expand span protections to cover all television writers. Not sure what that means, to be completely honest. They want to apply MBA minimums to, co uh, to comedy variety programs made for new media, increase residuals for undercompensated reuse markets, restrict uncompensated use of excerpts. They have some pension plan and health funds. Uh, they, they want increased contribution to that. And they want some professional standards. Um, so they want to require weekly payment of compensation and a minimum of two steps for feature contracts in which compensation falls below a specified threshold. They want to strengthen regulation of options and exclusivity in television writer employment contracts. They want to regulate use of material produced using artificial intelligence, uh, which is very important. Um, they want to enact measures to combat discrimination, and they want to revise and expand all arbitrator lists. And so... There's a you know there you can see there's a lot of things there um, that that some of those are kind of in in the weeds for people that are not writers uh, but there's a lot of stuff that's really easy to understand and and the crux of it is that they're trying to cut staff they're trying to um, uh, cut pay and increase hours worked and and have more flexibility over their workforce which is just not good for the worker um, and and so they're they're fighting back against this and and of course we support them and and we are uh, you know uh, certainly hope to see them hope to see them successful and uh, Adam Conover we're going to be playing a clip from him in just a second but he he mentioned on CNN. And we're not going to play this clip, but but it, it's a good one if you want to look it up. Adam Conover on CNN recently, he 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 talked about how um, the CEO of Warner Brothers, which is just one of the big media companies, makes as uh, uh, makes more money, if I'm remembering right. And and you can go look up this CNN clip, and maybe when we clip this segment, uh, I'll have Joe actually put it in. But the the, the CEO of Warner Brothers makes more money. Than if the uh, than if the employers agreed to all of the conditions that the writers are asking for for all eleven thousand of them. So you know the writers have these proposals. They have these the the, the they want to you know they have a, a certain percentage they want to increase residuals to. They want to increase minimums. All this stuff. The union has calculated how much that would cost, and uh, across all eleven thousand writers across the entire industry. And this guy, this one person, makes more money 
than all of the increased costs combined. I mean, he makes $250 million. $250 million. One guy. Warner Brothers Discovery CEO, David uh, Zaslov. Yeah, really, really crazy stuff. So this is absolutely not a, a situation of they don't have the money, the... Um, the industry is not successful enough to pay these people what they're asking for. Uh, the money's there. It's just going to, uh, you know, millionaires and billionaires instead of the people who actually do the work, right? Because, uh, and some of the people on the picket line have been mentioning this. When you put CEOs in, uh, in a creative's job, you get something like Quibi. You know, this totally failed experiment in short form content uh, that was completely directed by uh, business freaks instead of uh, writers and artists and things like this. Um, so, uh, uh, so we want writers to be driving the artistic production in television and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And so uh, it's important that this strike succeeds. And, uh, and, and so Adam Conover talked about uh, the experience of, of being on the picket line, actually, and, and it, was, uh, it was really cool. So I wanted to play it for y'all here. First action, and there was a moment, you know, a week or two ago where I was like, I don't wanna go on strike. There's other shit I want to do, you know? I want to, I got my career I want to worry about. I, I got a podcast, I'm making videos, I want to pitch to TV shows, I don't want to do this. None of us want to be here, right? But as it became clear that this is what they were going to force us to do, it started to feel to me to be a really beautiful opportunity because, you know, we all really feel like the world is fucked up, you know, that like things are, things are wrong in America and we have the opportunity here to go and actually fix one of them with our collective action. Like the guild is asking me to come out here every day and picket for four hours. And if I do that, I can help stop Teamster trucks from going into that building and we can halt productions and that'll shorten the strike and that'll make them come to the table and that'll make them cut the workers in on their profits and I get to actually move the boulder of how fucked up things are in America by showing up here with a sign. That's incredible. How many issues are there that you care about that you would like to do something about but there's nowhere you can show up with a sign to do it. You can't show up with a sign to climate change. You can join, you can go join Sunrise Movement and stuff like that, right? But like you don't have we don't get these opportunities often in life to step up and actually fucking do something and it's incredible really cool stuff um from adam con over there uh really appreciate that um uh really great testimony about uh the power that that striking brings you yeah absolutely and i also want to lift up a, an article by alex press mm. uh published mm -hmm. by jacobin uh I thought that was a really good article that they put out. And, um, you know, they talked about uh, some of the other unions that have been active on the picket lines, including uh, the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild of America, and, of course, my union, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE. Um, so, you know, definitely sending my solidarity with all of our uh, sisters and brothers with WGA. I uh, hope the writers get the fair contract that they deserve. Absolutely, and just for your uh, just just to contrast, you know uh, the the two sides, right? Because there are two sides, and and uh, so there is a question of, of which side are you on? Um, and so we've talked about um, the 
the riders and what they're asking for and what they're getting. And there's that testimony there from Adam Conover. And so just for your contrast here, uh, I have clipped the uh, this week's Rich Dick segment from Means Morning News, where they highlight the uh, chief negotiator for the bosses in this fight. So, uh, Adam, let's let's play that. Lombardini is the head of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, and she's the lead negotiator on behalf of Capital in the labor fight against Hollywood writers. Just two days before the studio's contract with the Writers Guild of America was about to expire, Lombardini offered the union a crummy deal that all but assured a strike. Variety reported on the negotiations and Lombardini's proposal, quote, it did not include key elements that the Writers Guild of America has insisted are essential to sealing a new three-year contract, including a mandatory minimum number of weeks for TV writers and a minimum staff size for writers' rooms. Now, this isn't Lombardini's first rodeo. She was an executive with the AMPTP, number two in command, in fact, during the last writer's strike in 2007, which lasted 100 days. We're now on day four of this one, and Lombardini is reportedly just antagonizing the writers now. Union members familiar with negotiations said that when pressed on setting minimums on duration of employment, Lombardini replied, quote, writers are lucky to have term employment. Wow, just straight up insulting your workforce. If they're so lucky to be employed, then why don't you write your own damn scripts, Carol? Let's see how that one goes. Can't wait to see how you nail the end of Yellow Jackets. Oh, it was all a dream. Wow, so talented. Look, the story here is quite simple. The major studios are money-making machines, earning billions in profit every year. And they've used the transition to streaming to undercut their workforces by denying them hours and limiting compensation through residuals. As a result, the average writer-producer pay has declined 23% over the last decade, accounting for inflation. You think Carol Lombardini has seen her pay decrease over the last decade? Hell no. It's time to end the gross profit-seeking and pay the dang writers. That's exactly right. It's time to pay the dang writers. A uh, friend of the show, Dripped Out Trade Unionists at Union Drip on Twitter, mentioned that uh, just a funny happenstance, the CEO of UPS is also named Carol. Yeah. Well, imagine that. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's really important that these writers get a good contract. Entertainment is such a big component of the American economy. I mean, mm -hmm. you think about it, what does America make these days? Uh, manufacturing is not what it used to be. It's entertainment. It's one of the biggest mm -hmm. products that we consume in this country and that we export to other countries. And so, uh, you know, these writers definitely, you know, sending our love and solidarity to them and wishing them all the best in this struggle. Hopefully it will be a, a victory very soon. Uh, and again, just want to lift them up. Yeah. Uh, Adam, uh, you had some, Cop City. We haven't talked a whole lot about that, but but obviously we are. Um, you know, I don't think that we've been shy about 
you know, our criticism of the police state, and and we of course oppose the construction of Cop City, and we stand in solidarity with all the protesters out there. Um, and, uh, and and it's really just a shame what's happening, uh, and the idea that that um, they would be spending so much money and so much political capital and so much resources uh, trying to oppose the will of the people in this community who clearly do not want uh, Cop City to be built. And, uh, and, and the idea that, that uh, you know, the people in power are just trying to uh, roll over them is, uh, is really gross. Um, we are a union radio show, and so it's worth noting that uh, the people who have been hired to construct uh, Cop City, according to organizers over there, are uh, non-union construction firms, um, which shouldn't, shouldn't be any surprise. And so, no doubt, the people that are being uh, the 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 employers that are being paid to construct Cop City are no doubt uh, abusing their employees in uh, very similar ways that the cops who are ultimately who would ultimately be trained in Cop City, if it is created if it is constructed are going to go out and abuse uh citizens yeah yeah and and i I just want to echo those sentiments and and absolutely um you know want to stop cop city and i i applaud the folks who have been taking a stand there in atlanta uh and, and in georgia more broadly definitely applaud those folks and uh they've they've been courageous and they have uh withstood a lot of police repression and violence uh, and bloodshed. Um, and so I, I wanted to lift up the work of Scalawag magazine uh, on this particular subject. They have put out a lot of writing just uh, over the last week in particular uh, about Cop City. Uh, Micah Herskin has a, uh, a primer on Cop City. This is the Atlanta way. I'm going to just read a little bit of the introduction here so you can get a, a taste for it. The struggle to stop Cop City is not just a battle over the creation of a $90 million police urban warfare center. It's not just a fight to protect the 381 acres of forest land known as one of the four lungs of Atlanta, currently under threat of destruction. It's not just a conflict over how the city invests the over $30 million that is pledged to the project to be supplemented by at least $60 million in private funding. The movement is all of those things. But even more fundamentally, struggle to stop Cop City is a battle for the future of Atlanta. So, uh, yeah, I really uh, recommend this article by Micah Herskin. This is the Atlanta Way, a primer on Cop City. Uh, it goes into a lot of detail on how did they get there, like, you know, where did this idea even come from? Uh, you know, who's the, who are the private interests who are funding this? Um, you know... There's the environmental aspect of this, obviously, the police violence aspect of this. You know, it's, you know, it's an intersection of struggles, really. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. But I think it's, uh, you know, I think working people should unite around stopping Cop City and anything, you know, remotely similar in our communities. Yeah, Absolutely. Really gross stuff happening over there, and uh, all solidarity to the people that are uh, that are protesting it. And 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 just so that there there's no uh, so that people don't think that we're not aware of it. Tortuguita, um, I certainly believe was was murdered. Uh, the autopsy has, has shown that uh, 
the bullet wounds went through his palms, indicating that he was, uh, and, and the way that the bullets entered his legs indicate that he was sitting cross-legged with his hands up. Uh, the cops allege that he had a gun. Uh, there hasn't been any evidence of that, has there been? Uh, yeah, I can't I, remember, but but it's legal to carry a gun, and regardless of if he had a gun on his person or not, the autopsy shows that uh, he was sitting cross-legged with his hands up, so he was clearly not a threat. Right. Um, you know, seems by all accounts murdered in cold blood. And, uh, and, and, you know, so the, the construction of cop city is going to reproduce, uh, cops like that if it's allowed to be constructed. And so I do think it's incumbent on working people to oppose it. Yeah. And absolutely. And, and just sending love to, uh, their family. Yeah. Uh, I read that, I read that the mother was actually, uh, coming to America, you know, demanding answers and, you know, God, what a what a tragic trip that must be mm. to have to, you know, travel halfway across the globe uh, because your child's been murdered by the police in a foreign yeah. country. So it's uh, very disturbing. Yeah, absolutely gross stuff. Um, a little bit, not, you know, a, a little bit lighter. We're not talking about somebody being murdered, but still uh, certainly not good stuff. Uh, a couple of weeks ago now, um, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey fired the early childhood education secretary. Um, and Adam, you actually worked with worked with this person during your time uh, in the you know orbit of the Huntsville City Schools. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, Dr. Barbara Cooper was the deputy superintendent of education in Huntsville City Schools for a few years. Um, she actually worked under Casey Wardinsky. And, uh, you know, try not to hold that against her too much. I'll, I'll, I'll say that uh, because I think she is a as a professional and, uh, you know, is a professional educator. But, yeah, it's really an example of politics and, and ideology just getting in the way of education. Um, that's what I see here. Uh, Governor Ivey is, you know, has pushed her out more or less has fired her, is my understanding, over quote-unquote woke concepts. Uh, The Mm. book is the National Association for the Education of Young Children Developmentally Appropriate Practice Book, 4th edition. I know, sounds scandalous, right? Uh, It focuses on teaching children up to the age of eight. And right, this is a teaching book. Like a book for teachers. A A book book for for teachers... To learn more about teaching, it is not for children. Uh, it's not even for parents. It's for teachers. Uh, very particular audience. You know, it's. I'm assuming it's you know a college level kind of textbook. Um, and yeah, it's it's just bizarre. It's bizarre and uh, it's shameful to see, you know, that kind of politics interfere because the early childhood department in in Alabama has been highly acclaimed. Uh, The pre-K department or or the pre-K program in Alabama uh, has been, you know, widely acclaimed and had very good results. Uh, You know, and of course there's, you know, critiques you can make of it just like you can anything else, but by and large it's been pretty successful. Uh, You know, particularly, uh, you know, as a way to get kids caught up for kindergarten, 
Uh, it provides essential child care for, for families who, who need the help. Uh, the biggest critique of the system is that it's not universal and it's not available for all children, but that's because the Alabama legislature, you know, hasn't made it a priority to fund that. They could if they wanted to. But, you know, back to Dr. Cooper, I, I worked with her and I found her to be a professional. Uh, you know, obviously her working under Casey Rodinsky, we didn't see eye to eye. Um, but, you know, I, I never was uh, I found her to be a disagreeable person. Uh, she was always very respectful. I think she knew her stuff. Um, you know, I, I think she's a person that has always tried to work inside the system one of those kind of educators and, you know, has kind of worked their way up the ranks uh, doing that. Uh, there are drawbacks to that. And I think she's, she's lived it mm -hmm. uh, because the Wardinsky people turned their back on her in Huntsville when everything hit the, hit the fan with him and he made his hasty resignation. You know, they tried to pin a lot on Dr. Cooper because she was there, right? She was the deputy and she still mm -hmm. hadn't resigned yet. Um, and here we here we see you know white conservatives uh, stabbing her in the back yet again, um, you know, and so that's sad, and it's just sad that developmentally appropriate pedagogy, mm -hmm. teaching that is appropriate for kids of particular ages, um, is becoming scandalous. Right, just treating people fairly being cognizant of inequities that exist and trying to reduce them, uh, valuing diversity. These things are, are becoming scandalous and controversial and uh, risking termination for educators. Yeah. And that is, you know, I think it's scary. And I think it is part and parcel of a broader attack on public education and public school teachers and public school students. And uh, But, you know, I think it's, it's really disturbing, and I think the governor should be ashamed of herself. Right. There was nothing objectionable that I found that I saw. Uh, I really recommend checking out the Alabama Reflectors coverage of this. They, they've done a good job, and they really actually reviewed the, the book in question uh, and included quite a bit from the book. Yeah, and let's actually, I, I want to just go over some of this stuff, because in the Alabama Reflector piece by Gemma Stevenson, um, they mentioned that the governor's office said they received a complaint about the book teaching about white privilege, structural racism, and messaging promoting equality, dignity, and worth around LGBTQIA plus identities. Um, I'm sorry, but you know what is objectionable about equality, right. dignity, and worth around a Gay person's folks, yeah. yeah a person's identity? Like you know. So, Here's they they say that um, one uh, one passage said that teachers need to be particularly aware of providing supporting environments and responses to children who are members of marginalized groups and those who have been targets of bias and stereotyping. I mean, this is okay. I mean, like that's good. That's you need to. This is not common sense. Yeah, this is not saying to you know uh, be. Uh, left-wing racist towards whites. This is just saying, you know, there are people have different cultural backgrounds. People face different things when they get home from school, 
And so be aware of that as you're teaching them and try to be as effective an educator for them as you can be uh, and, and try to, uh, you know, where appropriate, mold your teaching style to the individual student. I mean, this is something that 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 is uh, that that in other circumstances they would absolutely be in favor of of individualized lesson planning, and and so this book is kind of notion motioning towards that. And and, and they're yeah, pretending I mean, to be outraged about. And it. it's just making honest reflections and observations about society. Uh, you know. It, right. it comments on studies that indicate black students receive much more severe discipline in public schools than white students. That's right. a fact. Right. And that, I, and, I, and I thought facts didn't care about your feelings right. and all that bullshit. And, and that's a that, fact. In that passage, they don't say they just mention this fact and say to be aware of it. They do not say. Here is this fact, and therefore your you take disciplinary some action A or B or C that is yeah. you know somehow negative towards and, somebody. Right, and therefore your disciplinary record ought to reflect exactly the right. racial proportion of your classroom. Of course, that's not always going to happen, but it is just it is it's just giving the you know uh, there's no light without heat. Uh, there, you know, you have to understand the world that you're moving through to be able to move through it in the best way possible. And it's just giving these, uh, giving these statistics to, to the teachers, um, and saying that you know, be cognizant of this, right? And it's important to be co cognizant of realities. Right. There's another passage that discusses structural racism, and the book says, "quote Early learning settings are one of the central handful of places." where children begin to see how they are represented in society. Thus, the early learning setting can be a place of affirmation and healing for children, or it can be a space of trauma, terror, and exclusion. Educators must work to ensure that it is the former. Here again, very, you know, <laughs> this is accurate. accurate and good. Accurate and good. I mean, you can say, well, there's a pretty broad spectrum between affirmation and healing on one side and trauma terror and exclusion on the other right okay fair enough there's a lot of maybe there's a lot of territory between those two you know poles there but what is inaccurate about any of that mm -hmm. uh and that's see and that is part of the problem is that being accurate being truthful is not a defense against these people against these manufactured right-wing right outrages uh, and, you know, the fusion of culture war with the assault on public institutions, uh, you know, that is part of it is that they are scared of history and the truth and reality and statistics. These things threaten their reality, threaten their ideology. Uh, when it mentions and this is this is really kind of the linchpin, I think. Uh, because the recent thing has been attacks on queer folks, right? And so, absolutely, they yes, but especially trans folks because they right. found a really small minority to bully and pick on. Yeah, uh, and so when it's mentioned, when LGBT identities are mentioned, it is a reminder to teachers that families are different. This is the that's the crux of the thing. And the quote from the book is, "Children from all families." For example, single parent, grandparent led, foster, LGBTQIA, need to hear and see messages that promote equality, dignity, and worth. 
no, I mean, how can you object to that? The book goes on to say, quote, providing support and encouragement for personal expression and non-gendered play, that is, honoring children's ideas and choices with respect to gender roles and play, also teaches children acceptance and communicates their value within the classroom community. This is not saying teachers go trans your kids. Right. This is saying if don't, your boy, like, you know, if a boy student wants to play with a Barbie doll, don't, who gives a shit? Right. Don't don't discipline them. Don't uh, yeah. Don't scold be fucking them. weird about it. Right. Exactly. Let let kids play and let them do their thing and figure out you know what they're doing. Uh, it's it's so it's so objectionable. Yeah. You that, know that that we we have understanding. Yeah, and the the um the final passage about LGBT stuff is it says uh, quote an affirmation of children's identities is critical because children derive a sense of pride, self worth, and consistency from their social and cultural identities. For example, including books that explore and celebrate different types of hair, different skin colors, and a range of abilities helps to shape a child's positive self-identity, contributing to feelings of belonging and fostering a sense of care for others. And so this is even, this is even, it is beneficial not only for students to see themselves represented, you know, if I'm a black student and all I ever see in my classroom is representation of, of white folks, I may, I, it, it may contribute to a feeling of isolation and exclusion, and reasonably so. But also... It is good for the members of the majority to see that they are not the only people that, you know, that society is not centered around them being white or them being male or it ought right. not be. Right. And that other people exist and we ought to be mindful and respectful of their dignity and equality and worth. And, and this is the thing that they objected to. And there was... One complaint is my understanding to the governor's it office. It was a, it was a, from my understanding, a legislator claimed they had a teacher report it to them, a pre-K teacher report this information to them, uh, who they, in the legislator, in turn reported it to the governor's office. I mean, this is just really sick stuff because this means that there's a pre-K teacher out there that saw, hey, you know. You got kids that have gay parents. You got to treat them nice. You got <laughs> Yeah, and was offended by that. Yeah. And it's... and let me just okay, let me just say something on this subject. Uh, you know, I think it's important that we recognize that as we support workers and we defend workers and we support educators and defend educators, we recognize that they're not all perfect angels. Hmm. And that there are bigots inside the ranks. Now, I believe there's a difference when you have, you know, bigotry, it matters what access to power they have, right? So a bigot as a principal is, you know, I think more important than a bigot as a teacher uh, and, and so on up the scale of authority and power. Uh, but, you know, it, it is a shame that there are still some bigoted folks in the education profession, you know, in Alabama and elsewhere, I'm sure. Uh, and I've encountered some over the years and, you know, probably if you think about it, you probably have to whoever's listening and it's a shame. And I think it's a responsibility for educators to organize and educate and 
try to undo the yeah. bigotry and try to respond to it, to call it out when they see it and to try to paint a different direction. And, you know, educators should be out there sounding the alarms about this action by the governor and should de should be defending the concepts of equity and dignity and worth. Right. That's yeah. that's worth championing. And, you know, maybe you can call it being a social justice warrior or being woke or whatever, you know, phrase of the day. Uh, but I think treating people decently, regardless of who they are, is a pretty fundamental value. Mm -hmm. And that is under attack. And so is teaching the truth. So is acknowledging reality. So is intellectual freedom. These things are under attack. So educators have to, to organize and band together and be more vocal in standing up against this. And I know it's scary because of the limited rights they have and the retaliation they face and the, you know, overburdened working conditions they, they experience. I get that. I've been in the trenches and I understand that. Uh, but, you know, educators have a responsibility to uh, hold the profession up to a certain standard. And that includes dealing with bigots who are in our ranks. Uh, and calling them out when we need to call them out and educate, re-educating and educating them when we need to and when we can. Um, but, you know, I think what it, what a mis it's, it's a mistake to cater to that, to say, well, a certain segment of the educators are, you know, not just conservative, but outright reactionary and or bigoted. And, well, we don't want to offend them. And I think there's a lot of uh, fence riding in the education community, and a lot of folks want to cater to those reactionaries at the expense of their fundamental values. Yeah. Yeah. Real gross stuff. Um, real gross stuff here from... So, Dr. Cooper, sending you all the best. Even though you've been in management for a long time, I think you're someone who uh, does genuinely want what's best for kids. I cannot say that about the governor or her spokeswoman who put out this garbage statement um, or the uh, people who have astroturfed such things like woke concepts. Yeah. Um I wanted to mention before we go on to the next topic that there is right now happening a meeting uh, in Montgomery of the Alabama State Democratic Executive That's Committee. That's right. Um, and Hayden Wright is vice chair of the Youth Caucus, and they are voting on proposed uh, a proposed bylaws revision again after it failed a couple of months ago. And you would think that, like, okay, look, the leadership of the party who wants to change these bylaws to increase the power of their own caucus and decrease the power of the other caucuses would just say, okay, look, instead of continuing this fight, this power fight, which is what he, which is what Randy Kelly admitted on this radio program that it was about. He said, this is a power struggle or maybe it wasn't, maybe it was either on this program or Josh Moon's podcast. I can't remember which, but he said, this is about power, which is, you know, which is accurate and, and I think maybe, you know, more honest than maybe some people would expect him to be about it. But it's about power. And, uh, and, and but, but in his quest for power, in his quest for consolidation of power, he is factually uh, decreasing the representation of 
other minority groups besides black folks in the uh, ruling party of the Alabama Democrats or in the, you know, the, the governing committee of the Alabama Democrats. And so the Youth Caucus uh, put out a statement. Uh, Hayden tweeted it out yesterday, and so I'm going to read some of it uh, from the Youth Caucus about the proposed bylaws. She said, uh, the, uh, or the, the Alabama Democratic Party Youth Caucus said, the Alabama Democratic Party Youth Caucus is raising a call to action as it has come to our attention that bylaw amendments have been introduced aimed at dismantling the diversity caucuses. These caucuses in the Alabama Democratic Party, which include the Youth Caucus, the Native American Caucus, the LGBTQ Caucus, Hispanic, and the Asian and Pacific Islander Caucus, have been vital in representing and empowering the diverse voices within the party. In a state in which Democrats must unite in order to take on the Republicans, who hold every statewide elective office and supermajorities in both the state House and Senate, and attempt to dissolve these caucuses and silence the growing strength of underrepresented communities within the Alabama Democratic Party and across the state is counterproductive and only encourages division. Many members of the Youth Caucus, which represents 18 to 35-year-old Democratic voters in Alabama, as well as other members of the State Democratic Executive Committee, have stepped forward to express their outrage and disappointment at the situation, with one Youth Caucus member stating, quote, The very essence of our party is to champion the rights and interests of all people, regardless of their background. To witness some members attempt to eliminate these critical diversity caucuses is not only appalling, but goes against the fundamental values of the Democratic Party. We will not allow our voices to be silenced. The Youth Caucus is urging party members, supporters, and concerned citizens to stand in solidarity with the diversity caucuses and protect the democratic process within the Alabama Democratic Party. It's crucial that the party remains inclusive and continues to uplift voices of all communities in our state. And so they go on to say a couple other things, but that's really the gist of it. Uh, and she said <coughs> in our tweet, that I believe all individuals should be given a seat at the table. Who can speak to the issues faced by these communities better than themselves? The caucuses provide a voice to all minorities. And I think that's important to recognize. Um, and sadly, we were just talking about the Alabama Reflector, Alander Roja, or is it Roja or Roca? Alander Roja uh, just tweeted that the Alabama Democrats are feuding. I mean, this is breaking news as in like... Um, like it less than an hour ago. The Alabama Democrats are feuding over the proposed bylaws, which would eliminate the youth, LGBTQ+, and disabled caucuses and wow. give the chair the sole power to appoint new committees. There are voting members outside who are told they can't come in because they didn't pay a $50 fee. Wow. One member told me she did not receive any email or notifications about the $50 fee. One faction is calling for the meeting to be adjourned, and the chair told Tabitha Isner that she was out of order when she asked, are they elected members or are they not? The chair said there were 63 votes for and 49 votes against the proposed bylaws. Members are calling wow. for a roll call vote. It's just so sad to see. Yeah. It's a disorganized bunch of foolishness, and it's just sad. Yeah. And, um, you know, the working people of Alabama deserve much, 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 much better yeah. than what the Alabama Democratic Party has to offer and has offered for quite some time. So, 
you know, I, I think we'll see what happens with it, but it's a shame. I, you would think building a coalition would be the, the goal of a minority party. You would think. Mm-hmm. Yep. If if one were inclined to make any progress whatsoever, it would be growing your coalition. Uh, yep. And it seems to me there are people who have no in- interest in doing that. Right. Whether they want to be a big fish in a small pond or, or for whatever reason. Yeah. It, it just, it, it really is, it's really baffling um, why you would continue. I mean, you know, I guess this is kind of like the iron law of institutions, right? You would mm-hmm. rather preserve your, your power within the institution than grow the power of the institution itself. Um, but it is, it is really kind of bizarre to see this sort of stuff happening. Um, continue power struggles within a completely at this point irrelevant organization <laughs> right right yeah as opposed to trying to say like okay look and it's not even like you know he won the the joe reed randy kelly faction won the power of the chair uh and so you would think they would just be satisfied with that as opposed to saying no we have to have like total and unilateral control and complete control over this completely irrelevant and dead and dying right how does this engage more people how does this build the party how does this grow your coalition how i don't you know that's supposed to be your goal right uh ostensibly that's the goal and i don't understand it if you have people who are interested in getting involved you should see that as an asset not as a threat yeah, it's just but, it's wild. And so and and you know and and this is this kind of stuff, this kind of stuff is why I had is why back in 2018 I made the decision to step back from electoral stuff and party and democratic party stuff and and focus on uh my union work because I just I you know, of course you see some kind of stuff like this, but you do see it seems to me I see less of this within the union world than within the Democratic Party world and less like, I mean, there's definitely needless fighting and personality conflicts and stuff like this, but the, the material implications, I guess, of the fights are more there as opposed right. to this well, is all just vanity stuff. And it's yeah, just, and, know, you know, those, those are relationships in the workplace and also you're, you're talking about uh, institutions that are fundamentally more democratic than... The Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has no obligation to be a democratic, like, entity. Right. You know, it just doesn't really. Yeah. So, Um, you know, unions by law have to be. But a political party, it's a little different. Uh, Seems to me they don't have quite the the strict uh, regulation there. Free American 2020 in the chat said somebody once said something about not being a member of an organized political party. They were a Democrat. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, um, Adam, let's talk about let's talk about your school visits last week. Last week, sure. you went to three different schools. Two different schools Two across different three schools different days. On three different days. Yeah. Um, for Workers Memorial Day and for May Day, talking about uh, talking about organized labor, the history of unions, what unions do for workers today. So, talk to us about you know what was what uh, first. Talk to us about the lesson plan. What sure. what did you go over with these? Sure, guys? yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you said a little bit of it. Uh, 
you know, I, of course, introduced myself and talked about my own journey in the labor movement uh, and got a chance to talk about, you know, IOTC stagehand life and show them some, you know, some photos of backstage, tell them a little bit about what we do, uh, but also described what is a union and, and defined unions, the different types of unions, what they do. Um, and then we took a look at, you know, membership of, of unions across the country and in, in Alabama and even across the world. Uh, before we trans, you know, before we uh, we wrap things up, though, we we did some union history and we looked at the history of unions uh, in the United States, uh, you know, whether that's the the different kind of waves of unionization that have taken place in different eras. Uh, as long as along with some uh, key terms and people and events like the IWW and Mother Jones and the Knights of Labor. Uh, so we, we hit several social studies standards in the lesson, uh, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade history classes. And uh, then we also had the career readiness component of it because we talked about union job opportunities available in the in the community. Uh, including the apprenticeship programs that so many of our trade unions offer. Uh, I was really excited. Uh, so I, I visited two schools. Uh, one was Elkmont High School and one was the Limestone County Tech School. And it was 10th and 11th grade U.S. history classes at both schools. Uh, and at the Tech School, I actually had uh, Eddie Mitchell and Thomas Berryhill from Ironworkers 477 uh, get to join me and, and talk more in detail about their apprenticeship program and the opportunities they provide. So, uh, you know, I know at least some of the kids reported that, you know, they, they were very excited to, to hear about other opportunities besides mm -hmm. just the typical, you know, college, military or, you know, whatever right. local job you can find. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, that was a little bit about what we did and, and, uh, you know, and some, yeah, of, some of the stuff we talked about. That That's really, really cool. And I'm, I'm glad that you were able to do that. Uh, the, um, and it, you, you said that, you know, you had a, a feedback form and 111 kids responded. Is that the, t is, did every kid respond? Was that like yeah, part of the yeah. assignment? Or? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, every kid. Yeah, gave me some feedback. Um, it was 111 students total. I was able to talk to uh, across three days, you know, across two schools. Uh, so that was really cool. And, and uh, it was just a standard feedback form, but I asked them to give me a rating, you know, me and the presentation itself, a rating from one to five, five being best. And uh, the average rating was about 4.67 or so. Uh, so... You know, I think about like 80 of the 111 gave it a five. Uh, I will take those numbers any day. Yeah. Uh, those are good numbers because teenagers can be a tough crowd. Uh, you know, the Elkmont kids, some of them already knew me because um, my wife teaches there. I substitute there occasionally. Uh, at the tech school, it was a little different, and they were on a, a long, long block period class. Mm. So I was with them for quite a bit uh, during the class. So it was, you know, different, little different audiences, uh, different structures to the presentation. Uh, was able to do a little bit more like group work in the in the tech classes on the history part of things, uh, which I, you know, always believe in. So, uh, yeah, the feedback was positive. There were several kids who were interested in learning more about unions. Uh, several kids learned uh, that unions actually existed in the industries that they're interested in. Hmm. 
For example, you know, there's a young man who wants to work in the video game industry. So I told him, you know, how, uh, you know, there's been a growing effort to unionize in the video game mm -hmm. industry, whether it's Sega or Blizzard. Um, so, you know, there were, there were several conversations like that, that, that were really good. Um, uh, lots of good feedback and comments. Uh, I think the kids really learned something and, uh, you know, hopefully some of them at least, you know, will take up some of the opportunities. Um, you know, if nothing else, they're aware of them now, uh, where maybe they weren't before, uh, you know, at least half the class or more did not raise their hand when asked have you heard of a labor union before now wow. particularly in the 10th grade where you know it hasn't really come up a lot in class now in 11th grade they ought to know it but uh you know also know yeah. how frequently 11th graders pay attention right. so um but still you know uh, a good many of these kids had very very little prior knowledge there were a couple kids here and there who had an uncle or a cousin in the union uh, or a dad in the union uh, but, you know, kind of few and far between. What I did find is that many of these kids were already working, even the 10th graders. Hmm. Many of them were already working and working quite a bit, actually. Uh, and certainly going right up to the line uh, yeah. on the child labor law, uh, frankly. These kids are working their tails off. And uh, that's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, it's hard to focus on school when you're tired from work and... Yeah. You know, school is its own kind of job. Uh, so, you know, we had some good conversations. We talked about right to work versus at will employment. We talked about what should it look like when a worker gets fired? You know, right. when should a worker get fired? How should that happen? You know, what's the what's your different perspective as a boss versus a worker in that situation? Uh, so we had some good conversations and, you know, I'm excited to, to do more of that. I think the labor movement we always have to be growing. We always have to be building our support and expanding our outreach. And so why not talk with young people? Employers are doing it. Colleges are doing it. The military is doing it. So our, our labor movement should be doing it as well, talking with high school students. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I hope to do a lot more of this with the North Alabama Labor Council. Uh, I know I've already confirmed a, another teacher is interested at a different high school next year. Um, and so, you know, bring them on. Uh, the more the merrier. I, I hope we can do this uh, more broadly, and I hope we can do more outreach in terms of career fairs and job fairs, that sort of thing as well. Because uh, we've got trade unions out here in the community with great apprenticeship programs, great job opportunities. These kids can, can learn and get paid while they learn and then graduate and get a good job, you know, without debt. That's pretty cool, and uh, a lot of kids just, yeah, they need they need to know about that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you going and doing that. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and yeah, like you said, happy to have the labor council support, and hope to be doing it more through the labor council and bringing more of our union affiliates in. Um, if you're you know a member of a union locally and, and you want to get in on the next uh, the next right. school visit let us know and if you Absolutely. have if you're in a local union or even if you're not in a local union if you and you've got connections in a school um, <clears throat> that you know you know a history teacher or you know the principal or something right 
uh, you know, definitely feel free to uh, to gauge their interest and see. Yeah, if absolutely. In, in us coming by. Yeah, we'd like to talk to as many high schools as possible. We'd like to connect through the history classes to make sure that the history of unionism is being taught. Uh, and I thought that was important that I spoke on Workers Memorial Day and International Workers Day. Uh, but yeah. also, you know, the career tech folks, uh, ready to work classes, things like that. Uh, yeah, if you know anybody or if you're a high school educator and you'd be interested in us coming, just let us know because uh, we definitely take you up on the opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, so there are a few more topics, Adam, that we had that we haven't gotten to yet. Do you want to save them for next week or you want to try to run through some of them? Um. I th- I think I'm good to save them for next week. I know okay. we've got to uh, we've got a, a busy week ahead. You've got a a big weekend. You are getting married, so yes. that's a pretty big deal. Uh, so yep. let's make it easy on ourselves. We got to these are these stories will still be relevant next week. I promise you. All right. Well, that sounds good. Uh, everybody, really appreciate you hanging out with us. Yeah. Um, if you have any questions that you would like to ask us uh, or comments for the show, any comments on any of the stories, definitely feel free to leave us a voicemail or send us a text message at 844-899-8857. That's 844-899-TVLR. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just a couple final plugs. Don't forget about Shop Talk on Thursday mornings. Uh, now, as Joe pointed out, I'm not super reliable on the time frame. Nine thirty is a goal. It's not a, it's not a deadlocked thing. Uh, if you want it to be a deadlocked thing, then uh, consider getting your organization to support Shop Talk so that he can have the resources to make sure that he's here at nine thirty on. Thursdays. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that's the way uh, to, that's the way to do it. We've right. got, we've got a whole lot, mo- a whole lot more money behind the main show on Saturdays. Uh, and so a whole lot more reason to ensure that we're consistent on the time. On yeah, Saturdays. yeah. So uh, shop talk, it, it is what it is. I couldn't help it. I had a flat tire and the shop took uh, way, way too long uh, <laughs> to put on two tires. I don't know what was going on there, but shop talk is on Thursdays. Uh, I know the type of content we're doing on shop talk is kind of evergreen. So it's stuff that you can come back to. So if you've missed some of the previous episodes, check out the back catalog. Uh, It's all about labor education, history, and training. And we've been kind of rotating about every other episode. So, you know, a history episode followed by a training episode, followed by a history episode, and and so on. That's kind of been the rotation lately. Uh, So just did a history episode this week. Uh, Probably going to do a training episode next week. I've got a special feature labor notes episode this month. Uh, for the first month. And so that's going to be cool. Uh, I've already talked to a really cool Teamster brother uh, about an article he did. So uh, yeah, check out Shop Talk. And uh, if you're not already, sign up for our email list at tvlr.fm. Definitely want that. And uh, my last thing I wanted to say is that it is Teacher Appreciation Week. I really love and appreciate all the teachers. Uh, Thank you to all the teachers who taught me. Thank you to my daughter's teachers. Thank you to my wife, who is a fantastic teacher herself. Uh, And to all my educator kin, uh, I hope you felt appreciated this week. Uh, You know, I definitely know how hard your job is and how important your job is. Um, And you deserve support. I 
for me as a teacher, one of my most favorite gifts you could give me would be to email your legislators and tell them to <laughs> stop screwing me over uh, and to actually, you know, oppose privatization and support funding of public schools. So if you haven't done that this week, if you haven't contacted your legislator, that's a great way to show teacher appreciation. Uh, believe me, if they're anything like me, they'll appreciate that more than, you know, a Starbucks gift card. Uh, though those are welcome as well. But uh, yeah, just want to send my love and appreciation to all the educators. Uh, I was, I'm grateful that I had an opportunity to teach some really amazing students uh, and, you know, been able to see them grow into fully fledged adult humans, you know, with their own success and their own lives. And that's really cool. Uh, and got a, got a chance to meet and, and serve with a lot of educators in Huntsville and across Alabama, uh, struggle alongside those educators for better working conditions and better schools. And so it's, uh, they will always have a special place in my heart and I really appreciate you. Absolutely. <clears throat> you can also buy our new shirts, dvlr.fm slash store. Oh, yeah, Give you one more definitely. look. There you go. You want to get that. Get the shirt. All right, folks. We're going to head on out of here. Y'all have a good week. Solidarity, y'all.